I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Media. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up. We're going to talk about the long voter lines in Texas and Georgia, as well as these fake voter boxes out in California. And then a little later on in the pod, we are going to be interviewing Suzanne Lahoud and Cy Hookstra, who are editors of a new anthology called Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. So stay tuned. Autumn, how in the world are you these days? Everything great in Lucketland? Well, you mentioned the title of that book was In the Era of Trump and Beyond, and I'm really looking forward to the beyond. The beyond. (laughs) We're like, what, two weeks away? Two weeks away from uh, the election. It's going to be an interesting uh, time. I know that uh, people are already trying to make plans, what that's going to look like uh, election night, obviously because of COVID. You know, hopefully people aren't throwing grand parties and stuff like that and watch parties because we still need to be safe, even though it is a very exciting time in the life of the country. Uh, We need to take precautions because numbers continue to escalate. Uh, Here in the state of Oklahoma, we were notified this week that Oklahoma is out of ICU beds because of COVID-19. And the numbers continue to, to climb. And uh, it seems like the uh, the president and the administration and, and some of our leaders in Washington, D.C. and uh, in our states still don't want to take this seriously and still think that uh, if they're just tough enough that uh, we can all get over it. And it's just it's just craziness. But, uh, yes, that beyond we're, we're we're close now. It could be an extension of the beyond. Have you thought of that, Autumn? I've thought of that. I think that's sort of the reality I've been operating within. I think after 2016, I trust no polls. I trust no predictions. And so I'm sort of preparing myself as if he will be reelected um, for what that will be like for us. And there is also a glimmer of hope that he won't be because that's my preference. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I, yeah, I can still remember four years ago uh, when President Trump now was candidate Trump and really shocked the world. I mean, nobody expected him to beat Hillary Clinton, probably one of the most qualified candidates that's ever run for the presidency. Uh, polls are showing her way ahead. Uh, people were getting pretty cocky on the Democratic side of things, and people were feeling pretty gloomy on the Republican side of things. And then all of a sudden, 24 hours after the election is concluded, we've got President Trump. And he quickly began to implement the policies that he talked about, and people were shocked. People just could not believe that he actually meant the stuff that he said that he was going to do while he was a candidate. And lo and behold, he began to implement each and every one of those, and we have been we have been trying to get through for the last four years. And here we are at the doorstep of yet another election with uh, polls again saying that uh, he is going to lose. But I think you're right. I think there is a strong possibility that uh, he could pull an upset off and continue to be president for the next four years. So who knows what's going to happen? You know, we're seeing some unprecedented. I feel like that's the word of 2020, unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. But we're seeing so many people who have already voted absentee and by mail. We're seeing, um, I saw a statistic out of Texas that Travis County, where Austin, the state's capital is, 97% of people in Travis County are registered to vote. Wait a minute. Did you say 17%? 97%. It's just unreal. That is remarkable. And, you know, some of the polls are already open. Early, early voting is taking place in uh, several states. Uh, we are seeing extremely long lines in Georgia and Texas. I was watching the news the other day and a a young African-American man was talking about standing in line to vote this year. And he got there early. The lines were already around the block and uh, they were making certain to stay socially distanced because of COVID. And just little by little, he crept up and crept up. But he did not vote until 1 o'clock in the morning. Now, let me tell you how long he stood there. He was able to watch a full two seasons of a sitcom. (laughs) 
and then some because he got bored with the sitcom. <laughs> I mean, but God bless him and all of these people who are standing in line. They are passionate about the future of this country. People are out in the, in droves voting, uh, participating, engaging in the democratic process, and hats off to them. I'm so glad to see it. It's, it really does my heart well to, to see so many people engaged. At the same time, though, I don't want to normalize these long lines. Right. There, there has got to be some voter reform in this country. That's yes, but Autumn, not the kind of voter reform that we're hearing about in California <laughs> right now. The legal kind would be my preference. <laughs> in California, it was reported this week by the Los Angeles Times that apparently some good church folks out there who happened to be Baptist decided it would be a good idea to put a fake voter uh, ballot box in front of their place of worship. And I guess received several ballots. And here's the crazy thing. After it came to light and the Times reported on it, those who were engaged in this, uh, which I can't believe it's not illegal, but who engaged in this deception said, yeah, we're going to keep doing it. It just just blew my mind about how people, especially people of faith, think that this is somehow justifiable and that they're doing the Lord's work. I got news for them. It ain't the Lord's work. (laughs) No, we were just going to turn it in for them. I'm like, so here's the thing. We're going to do a quick all call. It was a Baptist church, yes. That's what you said. It was a Baptist church, yes. So, Mitch, you and I both know there was a committee to put that box <laughs> out in the parking lot. If you were on the committee to put that box in the parking lot, you need to call us and tell us what your intentions were. Who was the chair of that committee and who nominated you? That's right. And was there any discussion or did you just go straight to a vote? Uh, I, call, I called the question. I called the question. <laughs> Well, let's move on because we've got a great interview uh, in store for you. It's a little longer than our usual interviews, but uh, it's certainly well worth it. We've got a great interview lined up. Next, we're going to be talking with the co-editors of a new book called Keeping the Faith, Reflection on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond, Suzanne Lahoud and Cy Hoekstra. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we have two very special guests with us today. Suzanne LaHood and Cy Hoekstra are our guests. Suzanne holds two master's degrees in Middle Eastern Studies from the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut and Harvard University. Susie is published author and has over a decade of experience living and working overseas, most recently having spent five years in Lebanon managing relief and development projects for refugees and internally displaced populations in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. Sai is a public defender in the child welfare system in New York City. He previously was a staff attorney at the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. He graduated cum laude from New York University School of Law in 2014. He has spent a year organizing college students for political advocacy in Washington, D.C. with International Justice Mission. Both Susie and Sai are co-editors along with Jonathan, Jonathan Walton on a new book about to be released entitled Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. Susie, Sai, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to, to have this conversation with you all today. Well, we are very glad that you are here today. One of the things that we've been asking all of our guests during these days of pandemic is how are you both doing? So Susie, how are you and your family doing during this days of pandemic? Um, it's, you know, it's definitely a complicated life as it has for everyone. I was just sharing with, with Cy, um, one of my challenges recently has been figuring out how to uh, do this whole podcast thing when we have sort of an open floor plan in our apartment. So my husband's working from home, from our bedroom. My daughter is currently sequestered in her nursery with my sister-in-law who's watching her. So we're, we're making it work uh, as everyone is, but, um, the, the benefit of that is we've had some really sweet family time. My daughter is 14 months old, and so this is a, a really precious time for us to be together. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, good. Well, I'm glad uh, you and the family are doing well. And yes, here in about two minutes, my neighbor will probably start up their lawnmower, and my teenage neighbor will begin honking their horn for their friends to come outside. So I totally get what this is like working from home. Cy, how are you doing? 
I'm I'm doing all right. Uh, my my wife and I are both working from home. We're both lawyers, so I've been recently making appearances in uh, Skype court, oh, which wow. is an entirely new experience for everyone involved, and uh, it's that's been a little bit complicated. Uh, I, I live in New York City, so obviously we're doing much much better than we were uh, at the beginning mm-hmm. of the pandemic. So I think, relatively speaking, uh, doing all right. Well, I'm glad that you're both are doing well, and we're excited about the book. Now, the book has not been released yet, or is? No, it was October first. Oh, say so they can. Uh, our audience can pick it up on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever they purchase both their of books. Those places you can get all the links at keepingthefaithbook.com. Excellent, very Love good. It. So before we get into the contents of the book, let's talk about the cover. Um, we're not supposed to judge a book by it, but it certainly Very stage. interesting choice of photos. <laughs> so the cover, for those of you who don't have it in your hands right now, um, is a book. Uh, the cover of the book is a blurred picture of President Trump holding a Bible in front of that famous, you know, St. John's Episcopal Church. Uh, the day the federal government used force to disperse peaceful protesters for the photo op. So why did you choose this photo for your cover? I'll leave that one to, to Susie. She and Jonathan. <laughs> a lot of the okay, details. Susie. So please uh, <laughs> let us know. Yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, I feel like that was sort of a symbolic moment in terms of the, the kinds of um, the kind of message that we're trying to get across in this book, which is really a critique of, of the, the ties between the Trump administration and and uh, Christian communities of faith, and the way that this administration has sort of propped itself up, touting to be, uh, you know, sort of anointed by God and and representing Him as a government, and so we we find that to be really problematic. And it's been a challenge, particularly in the election season, where the the message is sort of that if you're a Christian, this is the way that you need to vote. So I feel like it's. We want this book to be to be timeless in in a sense in terms of the kinds of conversations that we're having, but it's also specific to this moment. But I think that 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 is an iconic moment that um, or notorious moment that I think will live on in American history and really speaks to the intersection of politics and faith in a way that needs to be sort of disrupted. I, I at first I was. Uh, it was sort of eyebrow raising that 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 thought of that <laughs> of that photo being on the cover, but I've I've come to like it a lot because, like she said, I think it was um, a, a sort of pivotal, or like a flashpoint where that really mm-hmm. highlighted the degree to which um, Christians in America that, who support Trump have become willing to uh, just see the Bible being held up as just kind of a sign of like we have we have power in America. Like we have someone who's on our side and regardless of whether or not he believes anything in that Bible or whether he's holding it, like he looks like he's ever held the Bible before in his life or, or any book <laughs> or, or, any, yeah, right. or, or whether, you know, a bunch of people were tear gassed in order for the photograph right. to have a bunch of people who were trying to, you know, protest for, for racial justice were uh, tear gassed in order to make the photo. You know, none of that matters because uh, our, our, our man is in power. Sure. You know, you think back on history and you think about the iconic photos that end up defining presidencies. And you've got President uh, Kennedy uh, there leaning on a desk during the days of uh, the standoff between the United States and and Russia as uh, a blockade was put up to prevent nuclear war. You've got, uh, you know, President Reagan at at Berlin telling Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There are these iconic moments within presidencies that end up defining that presidency uh, overall. And I think you chose wisely because that one photo represented so much of what we're going to talk about here in a moment that embodies Trumpism. Um, and it just, uh, I, I thought it was well chosen. And the fact that you blurred his photo even made it that more powerful because it is not clear. It is fuzzy. And the last four years have been a blur for many people around the, this country. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> now the book is a collection of essays from a variety of theologians and leaders, uh, uh and just, just a wonderful, wonderful, uh, a gathering of minds. They cover a lot of ground with their reflections and analysis, but as I work through the material, there seemed to be a common theme 
throughout the book. There is a sense of urgency that people of good faith, if we do not do anything, that we are on the verge of losing something extremely significant. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah I, I certainly think that's accurate. I think, uh, I think probably what we're on the verge of losing, or at least one of the things that is brought up quite frequently, is just uh, having uh, uh, God as our chief idol, effectively. Like, God is the thing that we worship above any else, right? Um, yeah. But I... I, you know, I, and I do think it's important that a lot of people in the book are are uh, reflecting that opinion from many different perspectives, like you highlighted, right? Like we have people from all over the political spectrum. We have people, um, you know, from from all different evangelical traditions, from a couple of non-evangelical traditions, uh, people from different ethnic backgrounds, from all different places in the country, um, all kind of standing up in unison to say, yes, we are losing something essential in kind of giving over to the machinations of this administration without questioning or thinking about it, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a biblical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Susie. Yeah. Another way we framed this project, uh, you know, we're calling it an anthology of the sense, but another mm-hmm. way we've been presenting it as, um, really an attempt to reclaim the narrative around what it means to be a follower of Christ in the United States and to try to reimagine how Christians should engage politically in, in this country, how the gospel should intersect our politics. And so in terms of your, your question of what are, what are we at risk of losing, for us, uh, a, a lot of it boils down to just the witness of the church mm. and I think our core values as the church. So there, there's a lot at stake. This isn't about aligning ourselves with one party or the other. I think, interestingly enough, that's been a common misconception about the book that uh, we're sort of critiquing an uncritical tie to the Republican Party. That doesn't mean we're now pivoting, you know, in the other direction towards the Democratic Party. It's that we as people of faith need to be critical in the way that we engage and need to constantly be bringing our our values in line with the rule and character of God. And, and so, yeah, there's definitely a sense of urgency. That's part of why, you know, the first section in the book is the fierce urgency of now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it is a present danger that, you know, it's so sad. There's that, that New York Times piece, Christianity Will Have Power, where Trump has fed the Christian community in the United States that he is the one giving us power. But the true power of the church is not the power of, you know, it's not the power wielded from Washington. It's, it's a subversive power, and it rises up from, from the margins. And so that's something that we're trying to bring to the fore through this, this collection of essays and this sort of symphony of voices that we tried to bring together. Yeah, and the, the sense of urgency is obviously a sense that we're on the verge of great loss. Uh, and uh, Susie, you're absolutely right. We're about to – we are harming the witness of the church, more importantly, the witness of the gospel – uh, not only here in America, but around the world, as we profess Christ's uh, love and mercy and grace, but also the sense of urgency of doing something. What can our people who read the book, there's some very tangible things that readers can do. So just briefly, what are some of those engagements that people can uh, put themselves, put their energies into during this, this particular time and period? So I, what we were trying to do with the book was to start a conversation uh, uh, around many different issues. But I, I think what we're trying to get people to do ultimately is think more deeply. Like, like I said, we're not, we're not, you know, shills for the Democrats right now. Like we're right, not, right, right. we're not trying to necessarily get people to go out and campaign for one party or another. Some people are, are going to vote for third parties. Some people think that's completely irresponsible and you only have two choices. And um, some people aren't voting. Other people think that's irresponsible. You know, we're, we were not trying to necessarily take sides on like who you should get out and support. What we are trying to do is, is have people um, like talk and to some degree be shocked out of hopefully um, the, what we what we see of is like real idolatry of power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I there you know we're trying to get people to talk is is basically what I'm saying. We're trying to get people to read and think more deeply about how their their faith applies to their vote and who they support politically. You know throughout yeah. the rest of of the 
you know, the four years in between the only election that people seem to care about. Um, <laughs> but right. I don't know, Susie, you had more. No, yeah, and Susie, I wanted to do a follow-up question to that because I, I think, Sai, this this line of, of thinking that, that you're projecting is, is absolutely 100% accurate. But Susie, somebody with a background in international studies, uh, with historical international studies, a lot of times we get consumed in our Americanism, uh, what's happening here in the United States. But history tells us that this this is beyond party at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there have been periods in throughout world history where we have seen authoritarian regimes rise up and people of faith, people, you know, uh, that are that have a common decency, a common value system, rise up regardless of their politics to stand against what they are seeing unfold before their eyes. So, I mean, have you seen this around the world in, in your experiences and studies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up as a missionary kid in Uzbekistan, so I, I lived there for 10 years from age 8 to 18, and that was under an authoritarian dictatorship uh, under the former president, Islam Karimov. And so, yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's frightening to me to see the ways that we're headed potentially in that direction, even displays of, of militarism um, really frighten me. And um, the sort of demagoguery that we're seeing with the current administration, and not that the United States, I mean, as you so rightly point out, I think historically we tend to be extremely ethnocentric, um, and that's extremely problematic in the ways that it plays out in our foreign policy. And even in the pieces that you'll read in the book on foreign policy, you'll see this critique that extends beyond this administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way we've been engaging in other parts of the world have been problematic for decades, um, probably since the founding of our nation. So there's a lot that needs to be said. But having said that, I think particularly at this time, at this moment, I yeah, I would have to agree that we some really uh, scary reflections of, of what it looks like when a nation is headed towards authoritarian rule. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're, um, we're being foolish if we think that that can never happen here in the United States. Right. I think we do need to be strategic in the way that we engage politically and in the way that we vote. And like I said, well, we're not trying to dictate to folks um, how to do that. I think that you do need to be conscious that there is a lot at stake and you do need to dig deep. And um, and part of how we're trying to encourage folks to do that is through story. I think it's so important that we engage with the experiences of those who are unlike us, who live in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, that we understand the lived experiences of those who are directly impacted by some of these policies. So we were really conscious to include the voices of Folks like a young woman who, you know, courageously contributed on her experience growing up as an undocumented immigrant in the United States, as a dreamer. And, you know, we, we talk about issues like racial justice in our country and what that's looked like under the Trump administration. And, you know, critiquing the sort of, you know, colonialism of the United States, the things that we've done to indigenous populations in this country and trying to bring that to the fore. So... Yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot that could be said historically, but but I do want to just latch on to what you were just pointing out, which is that we are now, however, at a particularly crucial moment, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Sai, as, a, as an attorney, um, can you speak a little bit to the delicacy, um, the vulnerability of the Constitution? <laughs> Interesting. Wow. I, 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 well, I should say I'm not an, uh, I'm not a constitutional expert, but I, I you would pass the bar. <laughs> I'm married to one of you, so I can speak to all of this. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I agree that uh, what Susie said, at least that our sense of our own like vulnerability needs to be uh heightened (laughs) we are not we are we we do i think what we a lot of what we've seen under trump is that a lot of the norms of the presidency were just norms that did not really have a whole lot of um uh teeth to to enforce them um you know we i i saw somebody comment that like when it really comes down to it the president can do 
largely anything that they want to do so long as he can convince 34 or 35 senators that it's a good idea because mm-hmm. uh, then he can't be removed from office. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, that I mean, that is to some, obviously the, the, the Supreme Court can, can tell you what to do and there, there are other checks and balances in your power. You can be voted out. Um, but, you know, it, it is, we are, we are not, you know, I think one of the uh, kind of collateral harms of exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, is we, we do sort of believe that we are, uh, you know, almost invincible. <laughs> like yeah. we're, we're the empire that can't fall, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it, it, one of the many reasons that I think American exceptionalism is uh, unbiblical and, and uh, just kind of uh, too rosy of a view. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's bring it down from a thirty thousand foot view, uh, kind of mm-hmm. down to the ground, and talk to, about some of the sections within the book. Uh, one of those is about political discourse. Um, now, obviously, we are in a very divided country, which has led uh, to a very divided church these days. It's almost as though there are blue churches and red churches. So, my question to you both is. Is there any hope for a productive political discourse to occur in this country? Do you see examples where people are coming together out of their differences to have meaningful civil discourse so that both the country and the church can move forward in a, pros- in a, in a, in a more prosperous way? Because, I mean, let's, let's face it, it feels like we're just shouting at, shouting at each other on Facebook and Twitter. That's what it feels like. So... Is there meaningful discourse? Yeah, I mean, one thing we've been talking about throughout this project is how powerful would it be if the church could play a prophetic role in modeling what that should look like for our nation? Because if, you know, our churches are divided, and that's a reflection of the fact that our nation is also divided, and it's impacting the church as well. It's infiltrated the church. And and maybe that's even a sort of, maybe it goes both ways too because of again this entanglement of christianity with politics right now in an unhealthy way and so i think you know to be quite frank this book um in some ways is us holding out hope that that's possible Uh, for me personally i've you know fought this cynicism and this instinct to just sort of pull away and stop engaging with those who think differently from me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really dangerous thing. And so this is really, again, it's interesting that it's another common misconception about the book that um, this is us sort of coming for, for Trump supporters. And, right. and it's so sad to me that we've lost that truth that you can disagree with someone and not hate them. And in many ways, this is sort of our heartfelt plea to please just take a minute and pause and listen to the stories and the perspectives of those who are unlike you and let that inform your thinking. And I like the idea of having it in a book because as you so rightly pointed out, social media is only going to get you so far. And in fact, I personally just don't think it's a productive way to engage with some of these deeper issues. I think these are, are issues of great complexity that require thoughtful engagement, that require nuance and taking some time to step away and really think. And so I know it's requiring a lot of people who feel differently to ask them to pick up a book like this and read it, especially sure. with, you know, Trump on the front cover. <laughs> um, and we're definitely walking the fine line there. And I don't know if we've done our job well or not. But um, having said that, I think what we're trying to offer is some meaningful food for thought that can lead to deeper discussions that I think do need to happen in in more extended formats than just, you know, tweeting at someone sure. or long drawn out Facebook threads where you end up, as you pointed out, talking past each other. And, and actually, interestingly enough, there's a piece in the book that gets to just that it's the one of the only sort of lighter pieces in the book <laughs> um, despite the much needed levity but there's a piece by Bart Tachi about how we've been particularly you know my generation we were raised first on um, aim and and we just have become so accustomed to engaging online in a way that sort of dehumanizes the right. people that we're talking to and creates this false sense of security and just saying whatever you feel like saying without recognizing that there's a human being on the end of that conversation. And and I think there's, there are two things that our book does that I think are important. One is our contributors do not all agree with each other on all subjects, like not even close, Mm -hmm. right? Like we have, we have, like I said, people from all across the political spectrum, they're united in the fact that they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. 
but any number of other issues that we disagree right. very strongly on. And some of our essays are, are very strongly worded. Like people are not that, you know, they're not playing nice in a in one way, but they are like, that does not mean that they're being disrespectful or uncivil. Right. So I would, I, I think, yes, there are many places where people are having civil productive dialogue. I just don't mm-hmm. think that we see them in our media all the time. I, I have conversations like that all the time and we were trying to have them in the book. Right. But uh, I also think that when when some people hear uh, that they, they, but we you know that what we're shooting for is civil political discourse, I think what what they hear is sort of unemotional political discourse, like mm-hmm. distanced political discourse. And I think that that is uh, something that comes from a certain place of privilege. Like if what you're talking about does not personally affect you in in a, a really significant way, then it makes perfect sense for you to say, no, let's all just be perfectly calm right now. Let's not, you know, nobody raise their voice. Nobody accuse anybody else of doing anything terrible. Like let's, right. let's all settle. So I, I think uh, we do walk that line of, of having good political discourse, but also giving a lot of space for people to express grief and anger and, and um, you know, do it in a way that is still pleasing to God. Like there's a whole lot of stuff in the Bible then I think if it was said, you know, on Twitter today, people would be accused of being uncivil. <laughs> right? Right, sure. A whole lot of Psalms and lamentations and things like that, that were, that, that would not fall under the category of what some people deem civil political discourse. Well, let me ask you this, because I think this is an important uh, line of, of conversation that we're having, because one of the most frustrating comments that I hear from people who are trying to engage individuals who support the president is that they that they understand a differencing or a difference of opinion they understand the difference of perspective i had a pastor one time tell me that you know he was sitting down with one of one of his parishioners and they were talking about uh, political uh, politics and, and and trump and trumpism and he said it was though they were sitting there trying to describe this coffee cup. And he said in a, uh, a healthy debate, you would both agree that it's a coffee cup, but you define the coffee cup from your perspective, your point of view. It's going to look different. It's, you, know, you, you can describe it in different manners. He said the problem I'm having engaging people who support the president is that we can't even agree that it's a coffee cup. <laughs> And so that's one of the most frustrating parts about trying to In have this analogy, racism is the coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So do you have any suggestions for people who are who truly, truly want to engage followers of Trump for productive dialogue and conversation? But it's though this when Kellyanne Conway uttered the term alternative facts she unleashed something that was already there, mind you, but really yeah. hit the head on the the barrier that is preventing us from having productive dialogue these days. Any suggestions on how to get around that barrier? Well, I, I just find it, I mean, to comment on what you're saying, I just find it so ironic and, and it sort of tragic that um, I feel like leading up to, to the Trump administration in conversations around Christian worldview and all of that, there was this uh, critique of those outside of a Christian worldview that they had lost a sense of objective truth and that, you know, they were sort of living in this world where, you know, you see it that way and I see it this way and it's fine, like let's all have our perspectives. And I find it ironic today that I actually see that kind of thinking more at work inside the church than outside of it. <laughs> and I find that it's oftentimes my friends who aren't uh, churchgoers, um, maybe are not necessarily people of faith, maybe are, but struggle to find belonging in the church right now. Mm-hmm. They are the ones who are standing up for what I think is objective truth. Like the fact that you cannot separate families at the border as a way to enforce your immigration policy. That's objectively wrong. That's never going to be okay. Um, I think we're dealing with policies like that today where at, at the end of the day, I think you do need to have a point where you can plant your heels in and say, this is never going to be morally justifiable 
particularly if you hold yourself to the ethic of the Bible and the ethic of Christ. And I just, again, I find it so sad that now I feel like we're in this place in our faith communities where more often than not, what I hear is, well, you just need to let them have their perspective. It's fine. You see it this way and they see it that way. And I think it is this tension of how do we do that in love? Um, and, you know, not coming across also as holier than how, I think, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, I think as Christians, we should be the first ones to be able to recognize that um, some things are beyond the pale. Yeah. And we have a God that reflects for us objective truths about the universe, and we need to cling to those. And so then when you get back to how do you recognize objective truth, I think we've also lost this idea that um, truth seeking, we, we call it seeking the truth because you have to actively reach for it. You have to actively go out with that intention of finding what is true. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you can't just so easily and so readily always imbibe what's being said to you, particularly in the, the type of climate that we find ourselves in today. And going back to this question of how do you see the rise of authoritarianism, it's when you have, you know, propaganda being fed into society that's twisting people's perception of reality. And again, we've seen this in other places. I, you know, grew up in a former Soviet country, and and we see this happening in the United States today, I think, in a lot of ways. So, uh, and and that's another thing that we try to do in the book is, is try to unmask some of those false narratives. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in allowing people to see that some of these conversations that they're having, some of these truths that they've, truths, I put, you know, air quotes, that they've been holding on to can't be taken at face value. It's so ironic that I hear people say that Trump, you know, says it to you, he gives it to you like it is. He says it like it is. And so therefore you can trust him. And that, um, I would call that to question. It's it's interesting too. I think that that we are so particularly bad at having conversations around difficult subjects because you would think you would hope that our faith would that our shared faith, like across party lines, would put us in a place where we could have those conversations maybe better than anyone, mm-hmm. right? Like like you, the the fundamental things that we believe, you know, are that we are are broken and corrupted by sin and that we're saved by grace and that we are infinitely valuable according to God and that, you know, he, we can't be, um, you know, even if you are accused of something that you haven't done, like you'll be vindicated by God. Even if you have done something wrong, you'll be shown grace by God. You're forgiven. Like that should put us in a place where we can have really long, really difficult conversations with each other. And we can give each other grace when we need to back out of those conversations mm-hmm. for the sake of whatever, because we think that it's gone a step too far for our own sanity, mental health, you know. But that has to be a two-way street in order for that to work, right? So right. you can sit and be as patient as you want with someone. But if they're going to, to you know, immediately dismiss the conversation the moment you say that something that they believe is racist – then like fundamentally you're saying I cannot handle this accusation, which is not something that a Christian should be saying, mm-hmm. right? Like a Christian, if, if a Christian is accused of racism, they can, say, they can stop and say, okay, I know that I should be slow to anger and quick to listen. And I should try and figure out if what I have said actually is harming people of, of color. And, and, and then I can, uh, uh, you know, assess whether or not I've been rightly accused of racism. And even if I've been wrongly accused of racism, you still have God, you know what I mean? Like right, you sure. still have what's supposed to be the greatest thing in the world. And one person, and it can, it can hurt that someone has accused you of something you've done that you didn't do or whatever, but it, it should not be a basis to end the conversation or say that I'm so offended that I can't talk to you anymore or, or whatever, you know? So that, that has to be a two way street. Sure. Also, I've, I've, uh, I don't, I can't remember how it is that you all, um, title your podcast, but if there's a way to call the podcast, uh, the, the coffee cup is racism. <laughs> that'd, be that'd be great. That's, that's exactly right. Title. So. Yeah. That would be the podcast tagline. That, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> okay. There's also another section in the book and Susie, you write a chapter in it called on uh, decolonizing uh, or de- uh, on decolonialization, I should say. As a Muscogee Creek citizen, I was very intrigued by this idea. 
you write in your essay, the idolatry of remaking God in our own image leads to such evil in the world. It perpetuates systems of oppression, racism, and hate. Its fruits are genocide, apartheid, and rape. Tell me that the church hands are clean from the blood of even the past century, and I will tell you that you are complicit in upholding the kind of blood guilt the church lives with every single day. As the editors of the book, why did you think it's so important to raise this issue of colonialization and the attempt to decolonialize the systems that we currently live in? Because I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I think a part of it, you know, going back to the conversation that the coffee cup is, is racism, um, I think this is the way that uh, white supremacy works. I think that this is a, it's a mechanism, this, this idea that we, as, as sinful human beings, in terms of our human nature, it's so natural to us to remake God in our own image and to attempt to force that mold on the world around us and to sort of put God into a box and chain him to our bandwagon. And, and so I think that's the way that, that white supremacy is now at work in, in our country. And it's not the first time we've seen something like this. I talk in that essay about colonialism from the perspective of the British Empire and how they used theology to justify the things that were done in India and to justify the dehumanization of an entire people and an entire race. And we can now look back in retrospect and see all the evil that was done. But I think when you're in that moment of being caught up in that worldview, it, again, it's so difficult to think critically and to realize that that's what you're doing. Right. It, it's so much easier in hindsight to see all the damage that it's done. And so bringing it again back to the book, this our hope is that we can somehow in the current moment have that kind of perspective to see this mechanism at work and to see the ways that we are hurting our brothers and sisters because we are trying to force an image on them, an idol on them, that is really just uh, us sacrificing them on the altar of self. And more recently, I mean, because this, I mean, this topic is, I mean, not only is important, but it's playing out before our eyes right now. We see the New York Times uh, uh, push for the, uh, oh, what is uh, their, uh, about slavery in the country? um, The 1619 program. And then Trump uh, trying to push a 1776 uh, program in the public schools. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, when you talk about patriotic education, mm-hmm. that uh, that to me is just to put more blinders over our eyes so that we don't see the, the damage that our our bad theology is causing because it gets into the it leaks into theology. Right. And and again, going back to this idea, too, that what happens in the United States impacts the rest of the world. And having having spent so much time outside the United States, it makes me so sad that we export our bad theology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we fancy ourselves a Christian and we come up with these tainted ideas about God and then we send them out and we um, damage churches all over the world with that. And and it's not that I'm against, you know, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's not that I'm ashamed of it. I just think that we also need to have a real view of, of who we are as people and our own sinful nature and, and we need to approach it with fear and trembling and to be willing to be called out in, in our own idolatry. I think that's so vitally important to the witness of the church in the United States and globally today. Yeah, well said. Autumn. Yeah, so changing gears just a little bit, uh, citizens are heading to the polls. Um, a lot of folks have already mailed in their ballots. The election is unprecedented in lots of different ways that are just the most hashtag 2020 that they could be. <laughs> How can citizens of good faith let their beliefs and values guide their voting? I I, I, usually, I, I hesitate a little bit to answer the question because the the we have a section in our book on discernment in voting, mm-hmm. and we have people coming from a lot of perspectives in the book. And the, the point of of the book, to, to some degree, was to give people uh, multiple different lenses to look at that question from. So I think 
what I'm going to do is predictably is point people to the book. <laughs> and right, gotcha. and I, I think we, we give a whole, there's a whole lot of material in there um, that will, you know, help people think about how they can apply their, their values and their faith to their decision mm-hmm. come November 3rd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well said. Very well said. So, Absolutely. Susie, so you have anything to add to that? Sorry. Uh, I mean, I think I think Sai answered it yeah. really well. I think that the one thing I would add to that is, and this is a, a common theme throughout the book, is as you make that decision, um, be sure to keep your your neighbor in mind. Vote in a way that that is showing love for your neighbor. I think, and, and make sure that your decision extends beyond yourself and your immediate um, circle. Yeah. 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 Well said. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, before I get to the last question, we I was driving in our purple bubble of a, a town here in Oklahoma, and I saw a sign in someone's yard that said, Jesus 2020. And so <laughs> my 13-year-old and I were having a discussion, and she was like, how do you think they're going to vote? I, like, I really don't know. Like, you could attack that from all different ways. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I just, it reminded me of this whole conversation, you know, Jesus 2020, let's yeah. just do it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. maybe it was Jesus, and maybe he's running for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very well could. Yeah. Or it's just Jesus as a write-in candidate. That's right. Know. Yeah, sure. I mean, it couldn't get any crazier, right? <laughs> oh. Okay, yeah. so our, tag, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your book and everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell? Again, I'm going to let you go first on that one. <laughs> sure. So I, I think what we what we tried to do a little bit in the book that we haven't um, that we haven't exactly touched on yet is we tried to sort of untie a couple of knotty issues for uh, people who are kind of stuck on single issue voting. Like we go right at abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and immigration and, uh, you know, race and cultural conflict um, to try and broaden people's understandings of how you can achieve the, the goals that you want to achieve through voting in, in like strategic and thoughtful and uh, ways that, that d- where you don't have to be stuck uh, voting and supporting one side because of one issue. Uh, there, you aren't chained to a party in that way. And, uh, I think, uh, we were just trying to like free people up to be able to vote all of their values, all of their thoughts, um, about where this country should be headed. And, and so I, I hope, uh, people don't stop themselves from looking at our book or considering other points of view just because they have like one, one pet issue that they're stuck on. Sure. Um, so I, I would encourage people to think about that. So good. Yeah. I'd say that, uh, and maybe this is something we, we touched on earlier, but just this idea that Trump is really the, the doorway into a broader conversation that we're, we're trying to have through this book. And I would link that specifically to one of the sections on, on foreign policy. And again, I think we did touch on this, but just that as Christians in America, there, there are a lot of ways that we need to critique uh, how we've engaged with our system and how we have, I think, bought into this mythology of our nation. And, and so I think that, in terms of the the relevance of this book beyond the election, we, we were speaking to a specific moment, but even for those who feel like their minds are already made up as far as how they're going to cast their ballot uh, leading up to November 3rd and on November 3rd, I would still in- encourage them to take a look because um, there's a lot more food for thought in there. And, you know, thanks to the insights of our contributors, some of them brought pieces to us that we, we weren't even expecting. We didn't even know that we needed in the book. Right. And so there's a lot of really important conversation going on in these pages. And so I would encourage folks to to engage, even if they feel like they're already in a place of certainty as far as where they're at politically right now. Yeah, we, we I think one thing we should stress, we don't think that Trump is the disease. We think he's a symptom. And we think the evangelical support of him is is symptomatic of deeper problems that that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about. 
Right. And I think that is 100% accurate because one of the things that Trump and Trumpism has done over the course of the last four years has really revealed our identity as a society. And Mm -hmm. it has challenged us. It's challenged our mythology, as Susie said a moment ago. It's, It's challenged our exceptionalism. It's, it's challenged everything about who we are as a society. And the book and the conversation that we're having today, while it centers around Trump and Trumpism, it really is a discussion about us. What kind of people we want to be? What kind of church we want to be? What kind of faith do we want for the future? You know, I've said this time and time again, when the founders created the you know, the Constitution and created this country, they knew they were creating something that was imperfect. I mean, they say so in many of their letters and correspondence. Mm-hmm. But there's that little caveat that says they hope that we create a more perfect union with the idea that we get better with time. You know, I would say the same thing about the church, is that the church was founded over 2,000 years ago and often wondered if Jesus were to return today here on earth and walk among us, would he be disappointed that we <laughs> haven't made more strides than than we should have? So He'd this probably con- be in a cage at the border. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that's probably true. That is too true. Yeah. But the reality is these this conversation, the book itself, really challenges us to reflect upon what kind of person, what kind of citizen, what kind of Christian believer do I want to be, and how does that play out in a larger world? Because there are so many people that I have to think of besides myself. So the book is Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. Suzanne Hood and Sai Hustra, thank you so much for being on our show today. And it was an absolute delight. Yeah, we'll, have links, we'll have links to their website and to how to purchase the book and all of our show notes as well. Absolutely. You want to run. Don't, don't, don't take another sip of coffee. Go ahead. Go to uh, Amazon. Go to Barnes & Noble. Where, go to their website. Buy the book because uh, it is very, very well done and, and great editing and great selection of authors. So make certain you go and purchase the book today. Thanks so much. Until next time, we thank all of our uh, listeners to for tuning in. I want to make certain that you tune in to our Good Faith Forum series that is addressing faith and politics. In fact, uh, you can go view our Faith and Politics, our second forum, who features one of the authors or of the essay or essayist in this uh, book. Dr. Randall Balmer uh, is on our program. Uh, second forum that you'll want to check out about Faith and Politics 2020. Until next time, keep living good faith.